This episode of That Time of the Month is brought to you by Essential Goodness, a local indie bath and body company in Nashville, Tennessee. Visit their store on Etsy, My Essential Goodness, and get 20% off by using the code TTOTM. All of their products are 100% made with natural ingredients and fragrance only with essential oils. Feeling blue, what do you do? We got stories to see you through that time of the month, that time of the month. Hello everybody, welcome to that time of the month. Did I just blow you away? Am I talking too loud? Um, thank you all so much for coming out. Give yourselves a big round of applause for being here. We're so happy you're here. Looks like everybody here is looking for love in all the wrong places. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a wonderful uh, show tonight. Um, as you know, we usually our usual format is five women and an honorary man, or a token man as we like to call him. But tonight, as you can tell, we've got, it's segregated here, three women and three men. And we also, not only is it three women and three men, but we have three old-timers, three alumni, and three brand-new storytellers to our stage. Uh, so that's very exciting as well. But I was trying to think, like, what do I have on that topic of looking for love in all the wrong places? And one thing I've noticed in reading this, the submissions on this is uh, a lot of online dating stories. And, oh, my gosh, I, I definitely... It, it sounds very traumatic, online dating. Um, but I, I did online date for a month um, back in Los Angeles. I um, I online date. I, I was on J date. Um, I'm not I'm not Jewish, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I just decided like I thought maybe Jewish men were more serious, and so that's why I went on J date. Um, and I also knew some friends who had met and got married from there, so that kind of you know helped. Me. And the only date I went on, though, was this one date where I met at this guy's house, which is like the worst idea ever, ladies, if you're dating. Yeah. Don't go to their house on the first date. Um, but we played Guitar Hero. That was like how he lured me there. Played Guitar Hero. It's like this, you know, game where you have to like ma match up like the guitar. And like, I've never played an instrument before. And he was so horrified at how bad I was that I'm pretty sure that's why he never called me again. He was just like, oh my God, you are terrible. Not a lot of J-dating in Nashville, I don't think. Uh, on that note, I want to get this show rolling. We're going to kick it off with one of our favorite storytellers at that time of the month, someone who, so far, the only people who I've kind of just let... Um, write whatever they want is, is Chris, and now Patsy is also in that company. She's just such a gifted storyteller, wouldn't you say, Herman? Um, <laughs> she's got that rare, uh, rare gift of uh, comedy storytelling, and she sent me a story, and two lines in, I was like, she's hilarious, and of course, um, you are reading that story at the next show. So please give a warm round of applause for the one and only Patsy Lawson. I'm thankful for all the uh, Explore Story members here tonight. <laughs> Let me get up here where I can see it. I slammed into puberty at age 12. By the time I had reached 14, I was interested in anything that wore pants and had a fly in the front. This in 
interest overwhelmed my mountain-raised mother, who thought that sex and males were only to be tolerated at best. In no way was she prepared for my interest in boys, let alone what to do about it. As I remember, she and I were in constant, unfriendly competition to see who could outwit the other on the topic of boy interest. Me trying to attract as many boys as possible, she trying to run them off any way possible. Being a child of East Tennessee Mountains comes with certain liabilities. One of those is called inbreeding, <laughs> which was just another topic Mama chose not to deal with until a third cousin of mine showed up at my house. <laughs> the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. It was obvious to me that he had romantic interest in mine. He and I shared the same last name, Hatfield, <laughs> and descended from the Hatfield-McCoy feud. We enjoyed many of the same activities. We were both going to college. Typically, he showed up on weekends, and within a month, Mama had figured out his romantic interest also. This forced her to have a talk with me about dating your kin, folks. <laughs> the conversation began with, Don't you know you can't date and marry your cousins? My response was, yeah, I know, but Jim's not a close relative like brothers and sisters or even first cousins. She said, there's reasons you don't date your relatives. While I had heard this statement many times from lots of mountain folks, no one had ever bothered to give me the reasons for not dating your relatives. It was stated simply, as a rule, you must obey. And at this particular moment, Mama stated it as a rule also. Mama's next comment was, You have to tell Jim he can't come to see you no more. I was angry and confused. I argued with her for weeks until it became clear that she was not bending. Eventually, I ended the visits. I took college general biology uh, excuse me, it, I, it took college general biology for me to finally understand the genetic issues that are associated with marrying your relatives. In this basic course, I learned that marrying your uh, relatives can result in a bad mix of genetic material which could lead to strange abnormalities. My professor used the example of King James from England. You know, the one that got the Bible translated into English, and he was also the founder of the game of golf. Anyway, my professor said that King James was born with a major genetically caused defect as his tongue permanently extended outside his mouth. <laughs> he said royalty usually married from within their own family tree. Now... The idea of not marrying your relatives made sense to me. During my senior year of high school, I started dating Herman, a hometown boy. We dated through college during the sophomore and junior years. He proposed on a movie date night near Christmas our junior year. The following spring, my genealogical fo focus cousin came for a visit, 
and was told of our engagement. His response was, well, you guys are related. What? <laughs> this was news to me. He explained it to me, but I wasn't listening and gave the typical disinterested, disinterested response of, of finding genealogy to be confusing because there were too many lines everywhere and confusing words. We were married a week after college graduation. Shortly before the wedding, this same genealogical focus cousin gave us copies of the Green Jones family feud history and said that both Herman and me were descendants of that feud. He said, he said that sometime we would want to read it. We put it away with other keepsakes, keepsakes, keepsake stuff without reading or talking about it. Really, we weren't interested in geology at the time. We were more focused on the sex that marriage would finally bring. <laughs> this, this year, after nearly 45 years of marriage and lots of sex, we began to put together our family memoirs by going through all the stuff that had been given to us by our families. We ran across the genealogy stuff that my cousin had given us. We began to read and study, putting pieces together. It was all there in black and white. We are distant cousins from three family lines both direct descendants of the Green family and the Green-Jones feud. We also learned that a common practice during the 17th and 18th centuries among our English Green relatives was the practice of marrying relatives as a way to hold uh, and keep power and wealth. By marrying relatives, you could acquire more property and wealth with less risk of losing it to those outside the family. This new information was astonishing to both of us. Several days after learning about our connection, I began to finally understand my mother's behavior and to raise additional questions. Why was Mama so concerned about me not marrying, not marrying Jim, a Hatfield relative from the Hatfield-McCoy feud? And why was she not concerned at all with me marrying a Green relative from the Green-Jones feud. Did that mean she thought it was okay to marry another Green, but it was not okay to marry a Hatfield relative? Did she think there was less chance of genetic abnormalities from Greens than Hatfields? I will never know the answer to these questions. I suppose there are three conclusions to this story. Number one. I finally won the struggle with Mama over dating and marrying relatives. <laughs> I finally learned and understood the answers to why you don't date relatives. Number three, I probably should tell you that our two sons were born with all of their parts where they're supposed to be. <laughs> well, mostly, one son did have a mysterious tooth in the top of his mouth. To this, Mama would have said, I told you so. <laughs> Patsy Lawson, let her hear it. Oh my gosh. Kicking it off for us like only Patsy can. Oh my gosh. 
Oh, I thought, you know, what better way to kick off looking for love in all the wrong places than with an inbreeding story. It's such a wonderful, wonderful. Um, but look at, look how beautiful they are. I can see. Everyone thinks that my husband and I are brother and sister, so that's all right. Uh, Barry Jones is our next storyteller, and he's originally from North Wales, a uh, very beautiful area, and has lived in Nashville now for 40 years. I asked how he made that uh, transition from Wales to Nashville, um, but he moved here for work, which is why I moved here as well, for my husband's work. Um, he is also a member of the Hendersonville Explorer Story Guild, and he's had stories told at Tons of uh, different public events, the Tennessee State Museum's Haunted Museum, um, East, East Nashville's Tomato Fest, which is such a fun event, and the Spirits of Rock Castle. And his book is called uh, Words Upon a Tombstone, and it's this wonderful collection of his personal essays, stories, and um, I had the honor of reading it. It's really great, and we're going to be raffling it off after this. So please give a warm round of applause for Barry Jones. Uh, this is not an online dating story, let me tell you that in fact. It goes back a little bit before that to the frigid 50s. I grew up in the 1950s, which is a very, very staid time for those of you who might remember that. My story is called My First Romance. It may come as a surprise to some of you who know me, but I was exceptionally shy growing up. 15 years of age, going on 16, and still without a date. Not a single female apart from my mother, had expressed any interest in me. Well, there was my older sister, but her interest was mostly negative and a little hostile at times, too. But then along came Brenda with a golden opportunity to potentially expand my life experiences. But it wasn't really about Brenda. It, she was just a go-between between a friend of hers who could ultimately become my first love. Pauline wants to know if you like her, she, she asked. She likes you. Do you like her? Scintillating dialogue, this bit. You know, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet had to start somewhere. I had no idea who Pauline was. I never talked to Brenda either. They were both younger than I was and a couple of grades lower in Cowan Bay Grammar School, the only high school in our small seaside resort, if you guessed it, Colwyn Bay on the North Wales coast. I'm not sure who, who Pauline is, I stammered in response. She's over there, Brenda said, pointing to a gaggle of giggling 14-year-olds. Do you like her? Oh, yes, I replied. <laughs> Which one's Pauline? <laughs> Brenda identified Pauline as a relatively short brunette with curly brown hair, wearing a short brown gym slip, which is an odd name we had for skirts flowing skirts. She was wearing the gym slip with a green belt around her waist and a white blouse. Of course, they were all wearing short brown gym slips and green belts and white blouses because they were the girls' school uniforms in our dreadfully drab brown and green school colours. But the short skirts were somewhat, somewhat attractive. Believe this or not, by school rule, the skirts had to be three inches above the knee. Now, on the smaller, smaller girls, this could be quite revealing. And Pauline was a little on the diminutive side. And she was also kind of cute. Oh, yes, I replied with a little bit more enthusiasm this time. 
Pauline must have heard me because she turned and fled, her short skirt flaring out behind her. She was followed by the gaggle, giggling even more loudly. Brenda also burst out laughing, but did manage to blurt out that she'd fixed me up, and then she too ran off after her friends. I didn't hear from Brenda for a few weeks after that, and absolutely nothing from Pauline, and I almost gave up the prospect of a romance. Besides, it was a stressful time at school. The exams were coming up, and these were the big ones. These were national exams put on by the Welsh authorities, and success in these exams meant that I could stay in school. Failure meant leaving school and, even worse, getting a job. But at least we had one good thing looking forward to, forward to which was our annual school trip. Our school trips actually were quite an event. We'd take the 10.30pm, the night train, the Royal Mail train, that went along the North Wales coast, across the Menai Straits into Anglesey, and then on to Holyhead, which is a principal port for Dublin in Ireland. Then we would catch the overnight ferry across the Irish Sea to Dunleary, which was a principal seaport for Dublin. Nowadays, there are fast car-carrying catamarans that make the journey in an hour or so. Well, maybe a couple of hours. But in our, in our time, they were pretty slow-moving steamers that could take about five hours, which could be even longer depending on the weather. Because this area was where the Gulf Stream, Atlantic Gulf Stream, first hit Europe, and we could get some pretty bad storms. But it could be a fun trip, one that promised to be one of the best, thanks to Brenda. It was just a handwritten note that Brenda slipped to me as we passed through the corridor one day. Just a few words that filled me, thrilled me with eagerness and anticipation. Meet me on the top deck at the back of the ship at three o'clock. <laughs> and it was signed, Pauline. <laughs> I had planned to try and get some sleep on the ship that night before our day in Dublin, but not now. Now I had a far more enjoyable activity to look forward to. The big day, or should I say the big night, finally arrived. I still hadn't met Pauline, but I expected that that wouldn't be a disadvantage and I would be gaining some more personal knowledge. The school gathered for the late night train at the far end of the railway platform. Teachers scurried around trying to keep order amongst excited students trying to make sure that they didn't fall onto the track as the powerful express train approached. We all piled into the last three compartments that had been added onto the train for us. I tried to catch a glimpse of Pauline, although I wasn't sure how I would be able to recognise her. But I did see Brenda just as she was being ushered in into the one of the compartments. She gave me a cheery grin and a wave, so it looked like the plan was still on. The journey to Hollyhead seemed like an age. I just wanted the hours until three o'clock to fly by, but they seemed to crawl. We passed through Llandidno Junction and through the seaside villages of Penmai Maud and Llanfevechen, over the Menai Railway Bridge to Anglesey, across the island, the only flat land in the whole of North Wales, and finally to the port of Hollyhead. I don't remember too much about embarking on the ferry, other than it was very slow, as we worked our way through the formalities of travel to a foreign country. I was getting too excited to remember much of anything. I just had to find a way to calm down. So shortly before the dock left, the boat left the dock, 
I went to our rendezvous spot in the stern of the top deck. It was about an hour before our scheduled date, and so I quietly waited for three o'clock. It was a beautiful, calm night. The moonlight shimmered across the near still sea. Low waves lapped gently against the slow, gracefully moving vessel, its engines pulsing and throbbing like the beating of my heart. The ship's wake glowing purple as it gently drifted behind us, and seabirds skimmed alongside. What a glorious night. What a glorious night of romance. And then there was a subtle movement in the shadows. There I saw a figure moving along the deck, moving towards me. Closer the figure came, a momentary glimpse in the moonlight, and it was a girl. Her shape muted now as the clouds passed in front of the moon. Closer, closer, my heart rate now far surpassing the throb of the engines. Closer, closer, so close that I could almost read out and touch her. So close I could really almost hold her in my arms. And then I heard those words that will remain in my memory for the rest of my life. Are you waiting for Paul? He must be not coming. She's seasick. <laughs> it was, wasn't Pauline, but it was Brenda bringing totally devastating news. I was mortified, absolutely mortified. And furthermore, I realized that I was going to be humiliated. I had been dumb enough to mention my date to the leering louts that I called my friends. Now they were wanting to know what, was, what had happened. What on earth was I going to say? I thought about that long and hard and for most of the remaining journey, and I stayed up on the top deck. I finally decided not to say anything. I would simply answer their questions with a coy smile. A gentleman has to protect the honor of a lady, after all. <laughs> and I've kept my tongue now for almost 60 years. <laughs> and you, my listeners, are the first to know what really happened. <laughs> Thank you. Barry Jones, keep it going for Barry. The Juan Pablo of our storytelling show, with a fabulous accent. And keep it going for my pants that I just spilled water all over. I'm just having one of those days. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I just want to say on your story, like, thank God, like, we have text messaging now. Can you imagine if they, like, go up onto a deck and tell, you know, someone that, you're, that the girl's not going to be there. Now you could just, like, send a text with, like, an emoticon of, like, a seasick person or something. And that could be it. I wouldn't be able to repeat the story 60 years later, I know. Because it would just be some text message, like, oh, she's not coming, get over it. Um, but uh, that's a wonderful story, I love it. Um, thank you, I'm so, I'm thrilled, because I've been wanting to get Barry on stage here for quite some time, and finally it's, it's always hard with the topic and syncing it up with that, so thank you for doing the story. Um, and we're going to move on to our next story. Uh, another person who I've wanted to get on the show for quite some time, and it's funny because we were emailing back and forth, and I didn't realize that it was the Lily that I've always wanted on the show who wrote the fabulous story. Um, she is uh, working on a novel right now, and also two collections of stories about church and bad sex. There's no, <laughs> but there's no overlap between the two there. <laughs> She's going to be sharing her story titled, I Sorry, and you may be able to learn a little something from it. Please welcome to the stage for the first time, Lily Wilson. 
when I told several of my friends I would be doing this, um, I heard some other stories about looking for love in the wrong places. And one lesson I drew that I thought I'd pass on to y'all before I tell the story is if you find yourself saying, oh, what the hell, in regard to your relationship, you may be on a questionable path. (laughs) My boyfriend had been bragging to me about the women he flirted with almost like a child, boasting of his accomplishments. He ogled other women when we were out together. I felt the floor creaking and sagging under my feet, but no one thing was big and ugly enough to make me want to leave. I know it's hard to imagine how such a man might hold a lot of appeal. (laughs) And it's harder still when you hear that he had begun to speak baby talk at all moments. (laughs) Standing in the elevator, he'd gaze at me, touch my arm, and say in his baby-esque voice, I love. (laughs) Or even, I love? (laughs) Simply, I love. He couldn't incorporate a direct object. (laughs) Remember diagramming those in English class that receives the action of the verb? (laughs) He couldn't acknowledge there was a significant or even an insignificant other. Once he poisoned a sweet moment with his, I love, (laughs) like a toddler's question, it occurred to me he might be stuck (laughs) in some infantile stage like a baby who hasn't yet learned to differentiate himself from his mother. (laughs) The whole world to a baby is one big me. His discomfort, his desire to be held, his need to clamp his lamprey-like mouth and tiny hands upon a nurturing breast. The whole world is him. Any indication of separateness such as the breast or his blankie being withdrawn before he pushes it away, brings outrage. And once the desired item is returned, he's one big happy, I love. (laughs) So alarmed was I by this idea that my boyfriend might be firmly lodged in a pre-sippy cup developmental stage. (laughs) (laughs) That I quickly pushed the idea aside. In fact, I carried it to the backyard and buried it deep. (laughs) Thus, we limped along as a couple, his most intimate murmurings consisting of, I love, and occasionally, I sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I sorry, spoken exactly like that. Not only could he not say the word you, he also seemed unable to form the contraction, I'm. The I'm sorry was generally uttered whenever I expressed anything beyond, gosh, it's a beautiful day, usually served up in reference to things over which he had absolutely no control. I'll call him baby man. (laughs) He had some endearing qualities. We had similar tastes in music and politics and a bit of a spark between us in the beginning. He was a great cook, and his apartment was spotless. In fact, cleanliness was something of an obsession with him. 
He scrubbed scuff marks off the baseboard with an old toothbrush. I didn't care about the baseboard, but it was lovely to sleep over where the bathroom was always spotless. And he was bright. Well, book smart, anyway. And at some point, he'd been lots of fun. The forays into baby talk had thrown a bit of a chill onto our relationship. The more infantile he seemed, and the less able to relate as an adult, the less I wanted him as an intimate partner. I told myself that everybody isn't verbal. <laughs> Every relationship requires compromises, and maybe we could connect by having fun. We cooked together. We listened to music. I tried to recover some connection with him, feeling certain it had been there and I could get it back. All the while, doing everything I could to dodge intimacy. I stayed over less, and when I did, I came to bed long after he slept. I'd wake early, run to the bathroom to dress. The thought of his hands on me, the baby voice chirping, I love, got me up and out more reliably than an alarm clock. I was coasting on the fumes of what I thought had once been good, distrusting my own perspective on both the past and the present. Unable to make a decision to leave, I stayed. One Friday night, we found our way back to good, making pizza and drinking beer. We spooned on the couch watching a stupid movie, laughing and working on more beers. He was funny and sweet. We smooched during the commercials. The baby voice was gone. The yum factor returned, like blood pulsing warmth into a frostbitten limb. I relaxed into being crazy about him again. We made our way to the bedroom, engaging in a competition to see who could fling their garments the furthest. His wadded up sock thrown like a baseball knocked over a vase of dried flowers. Amazingly, he laughed and let it be. We nipped and teased each other and felt the heat of skin on skin. The glow of his face pressing into my neck was gold, and his beard in the light of the lava lamp reminded me. <laughs> of a wolf. <laughs> I was hungry for it. The beer fullness kept us at a leisurely pace, and we were having the most glorious time giggling and yipping, flushed with joy, when he nuzzled up to my ear and whined, Honey, sometimes I just wish you had a dick. <laughs> scratching a record sound and froze. He wanted a guy? Was that the problem? Or he wanted me to get some type of device? Could I do that? 
sit very still. I slid a look at him from the corner of my eye. We were way, way past what the hell territory. <laughs> Before I got far with my struggle to comprehend, he continued, it would be so much easier if I could just do to you what I do to myself <laughs> instead of having to think about what you like. Indeed. <laughs> kink or a toy was one thing. That I could live with, possibly, maybe. But he wished he didn't have to acknowledge I was female because it was more trouble than masturbating. <laughs> I really was in bed with the giant baby. This was horrible in a most freeing way. I saw a door swing open, and my path, clear of any attraction to him, was lit with neon. I knew in that instant I would never be here again in his arms. I knew that the baby talk, the I love, and I sorry, should have been enough. No amount of beer or fun was ever going to make this okay. In the same instant, I decided I'd rather go through the motions than confront him, have the talk, and deal with his naked anger. So I reanimated my face and body and put my emotions firmly aside with a silent apology. Just for now. I'll be back for y'all later. <laughs> and I promised from now on I'm going to listen to everything you say <laughs> on we went my reply to his confession was hmm <laughs> smushing my face into his chest trying to rev up the machinery of this final act and finish off the mess <laughs> it went surprisingly well considering <laughs> We were proceeding along splendidly, or he was, <laughs> and I was doing enough to get by. Then a twinge of discomfort flew through my gut. And again, before long I had an undeniable stomach ache. Um, I said, trying to roll his weight off me, let's try that other position. He was agreeable, and we shifted accordingly. At least his weight wasn't pressing on me anymore. He seemed pleased with the new arrangement <laughs> and appeared to be enjoying himself mightily, despite my lack of a male member. <laughs> my stomach ache was building steadily to nausea, and soon my entire focus was on trying not to vomit. Too much food and alcohol, too much motion, and no doubt my feelings about the recently announced penis deficit <laughs> overcame me, and the beer and pizza came crowding into my mouth, overflowed and kept coming. <laughs> 
Gott. I tried to lean forward and send it down behind the bed to the spotless baseboard. But I couldn't reach. The vomit cascaded onto his shoulder and then split into two streams, fairly evenly distributed, moving down his back and chest where tiny hillocks of goat cheese and green pepper stuck in his manly hairiness. Anybody who has ever vomited on a shag carpet <laughs> will have some idea of the difficulties encountered when puking onto a hairy part. <laughs> he was a bit of a mess. <coughs> Baby man was nearing a pinnacle of enjoyment. <laughs> Eyes squinched tightly shut, head thrown back, making howling sounds, oblivious. I wiped my mouth on my arm and watched him. <laughs> Finally, he reached his destination, slowed, and became still. Um, I said, I got sick. I went to get a towel, glad to have an excuse to leave the area. He slumped, coming to terms with what had happened. Oh, man, he said. While he showered, I changed the bed rinsed out the sheets, and scrubbed the sink with Ajax, thinking, I'm not coming back. <laughs> I told him I was sick, and I had to go home. He walked me to the door, and avoiding my mouth, kissed my face somewhere up near my ear. I love, he said. He walked me to the... I answered with the only words that came to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Lily Wilson, let her hear it. Great job. Chris, your jaw was like on the floor during the initial like uh, penis comment. Um, but then when you heard like why he said that, you were like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> so funny now that I know that it was you who originally submitted the story because I didn't put it together that it was this Lily I feel funny now like I had to like ask her to like can you tone it down a little um, she's so much more, like wilder than she seems huh um, <laughs> that was fabulous oh my gosh that was classic and Scott here loved the lava lamp uh, <laughs> reference do you have a lava lamp that you turn on for the ladies or something <laughs> Chris, lava lamp, they're roommates. Chris and Scott. You, you have lava lamps? Yeah, you got me one. 
Oh, wow. They're, wow, they're still making lava lamps. <laughs> I did too. And a waterbed. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> my dad had a waterbed. What? I had a bear rug, a waterbed, and a lava lamp. Oh, my gosh. As a 10-year-old, Chris had a, a bear rug, a lava lamp, and, and a waterbed. All right. I'm going to be emailing your parents on Facebook tonight and ask what is going on. Um, <laughs> I said, <laughs> callbacks in the audience, awesome. Um, all right, uh, speaking, and um, I met Lily at a writer's group, and she's one of those writers you always, you, we each give each other comments, you know, on our, on our stories, and you always want Lily's comments because they're so good and so thorough, and she's such a great writer. And speaking of great writers, I'm going to bring up Mr. Harvard Law, just kidding. Um, the Vanna White of that time of the month, um, the one and only, the fabulous, fabulous, awesome storyteller, Mr. Christopher Pilney. Let's give it up for Melanie Bear. We're rocking the mic. Welcome back. Does it feel good? No. No, it doesn't feel good. I mean, it's, I'm so glad, glad everyone's here, but I'm very awkward. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, just want to thank everyone for coming out tonight. Really, uh, probably the biggest audience we've had in a long time. So it's great seeing everyone here, see some familiar faces, see some new faces. Uh, before I read, I just want to say that I am dating someone new, and she's in the audience tonight. This is her first time seeing me ever, so you please laugh as loud as possible. <laughs> because I would like her to come back. Story is called In a Room Full of Strangers. Several years ago, wanting to gain notoriety as a dating and relationships author, I began a blog called Boobs and Balls, Love Advice You Can Grab Onto. <laughs> the concept was simple. Readers submit questions about their love lives or their lack of love lives, and I and one of my three female co-writers provide the straightforward insight. His response, her response, it was set up, and things went pretty smoothly. What I enjoyed most about the blog was the questions. Sometimes they favored the more serious side of dating. Should a woman ask a man on the first date? Is online dating worth it? How do you get over the one that got away? And sometimes they were a bit more entertaining. Is it okay to look at cleavage? If I've slept with 37 guys, should I tell my boyfriend? <laughs> and my personal favorite, what do you say to a girl who, after going down on you, leans back and releases a loud belch? <laughs> to this, I kept my response short and to the point. Be polite. Ask her, would you like to see a dessert menu? <laughs> all in all, over the course of four months, we answered about 12 questions, the bulk of which coming in the first eight weeks when interest was the highest. From there, my passion for the site dwindled. Without degrees in counseling or psychology, I lacked the credibility to gain serious momentum in the dating and relationships world. There was also the glaring fact that I was single as fuck. And this was one of those, and this wasn't one of those, oh, it'll just be a few months kinds of singles either. This is one of those droughts that, arid and hopeless, leaves your penis asking to be traded. <laughs> I'm taking my talents to South Beach, it said to me each morning as I brush my teeth. Take me with you, I garbled back. Please. I felt like a Jehovah's Witness recommending a Christmas movie. How are you in any way qualified to give dating advice, I thought. You gotta be out of your mind. 
Even still, I flirt every year with bringing it back, namely because I'm always finding questions to answer, like the one I overheard last year. How do I tell my girlfriend her birth control is making her batshit crazy? <laughs> that, my friend, is, a, is dangerous ground upon which to tread, particularly if she's a card-carrying member of the NRA. <laughs> my advice to you is this. Avoid the topic altogether or invest heavily in Kevlar. It's up to you. Most of, the, most of the time, though, questions aren't this difficult. Take the one I received in August of 2012, for example, from a Mr. Michael Bubles. <laughs> Man, I have tried meeting women in all sorts of places, he wrote. Bars, parties, social clubs, speed dating, none of them have worked. Where can a guy go to meet decent women? Thanks. Well, I wish I had an answer for you, Mr. Bubles. Your guess is as good as mine. I can, however, offer you at least one bit of consolation, a short list of places where you definitely shouldn't go to meet women. There are four of them that I've found in my ten years of professional dating experience, and they go as follows. Sororities. <laughs> I didn't realize before writing this piece, but looking back, six out of the last seven girls I've dated were involved with sororities at some point in their college careers. It's gotten to a point where, when describing a new girl I'm dating, my friends say, Oh, dear God, she's not a sorority girl, is she? As if it's some kind of destructive behavior I'm engaging in, and they're moments away from staging an intervention. But it's not a conscious decision on my part. I don't wake up, up every morning and think, let's do some push-ups, then go for a stroll down Greek Row and see what we can pick up. No, it's more of an accidental pattern, the product of simply being attracted to a certain kind of woman, and why shouldn't I be? Sororities are a dream come true for straight men. Their members are usually beautiful, can afford orthodontia, and sometimes have fathers who are absurdly wealthy. All the girls I've dated have also been intelligent and hardworking, leaving very little room to find yourself wanting. The downside is this. If you do something you don't want the 100 other members of her sorority to know, don't date Greek. I spent a year working at Victoria's Secret, which I'll get to in a minute, and in that time I was horrified to find out how much women tell each other uh, and I, I don't want to know how many people found out about that story. <laughs> 65 or so tonight, that's pretty much. As a man, you naively assume that every interaction you have with a woman is going to remain in a vacuum. Sure, they might give their friends the outline version of the experience. Roman numeral one, we had dinner. Letter A, I had fish. Roman numeral two, we watched a movie at his place but never would it expand to lowercase Roman numerals and lowercase letters. That would just be indecent. But I'm here to tell you now that's not how it is at all. Folding panties one evening, I heard two girls discuss the vein on a man's penis and eventually describe it as looking like a spiral staircase. Even more recently, I've heard women consistently complain about the noises men make during sex, high-pitched squealing, or he sounded like a little girl crying making me sure as fuck to remain absolutely silent during intercourse. I'll leave you with this. I once dated a sorority girl and was pretty serious with her, but being young and unsure of what I wanted from my future, I broke up with her and began dating someone else. When I say that she turned her entire sorority against me, and even the other sororities on campus, I'm not exaggerating. Even years later, I feel like a communist trying to get work in the 50s. <laughs> I was blackballed, or in this case, blueballed. <laughs> Date sororities if you want, Mr. Bublas, but be careful. If you do something wrong, they'll know everything about you. The bad, the weird, and the ugly. 
all the way down to the veins. <laughs> Victoria's Secret. A few years ago, when I took a job working at Victoria's Secret, one of the questions that burned through my mind was, will women date a man who sells thongs for a living? This came to me from a friend who, a few days after I'd applied, said, you do realize that you're going to be the, uh, single the entire time you work there, right? No woman is going to date a guy who works with panties all day. In my stunned, semi-depressed silence, I had to admit he was right. Lack of income aside, dating a guy who works at Victoria's Secret is the closest thing you can get to dating a gigolo. Only Tom Jones and Will Chamberlain have handled more panties than I have. <laughs> it turned out, however, that, all, that girls will date a man who works at Victoria's Secret. I'm still not sure if it's because they liked me or my panty discount, but it doesn't matter. I spent my days advising 40 different women which panties they should buy, then went home at night to a girl who thought nothing of it. What else could you ask for as a man? But I'll say the same thing about Victoria's Secret that I did about sororities, except with the added cautionary statement, don't shit where you eat. Victoria's Secret is essentially itself a giant sorority. 90% of its employees are women, meaning that if you date one of them and something goes wrong, your life in the store can become miserable. I once made out with two of my coworkers at a party, who were both not single, then proceeded to tell the entire store about it. I found myself on the shit list for the next two weeks, just for making out with my coworkers. I never found out what would happen if I'd done something worse. I didn't want to, but I'd advise not testing those waters. Dog parks. From the outside looking in, dog parks seem like the kinds of places that romantic comedies are built on. You bring your dog, he humps the shit out of some cute girl's dog. <laughs> You apologize, then when you're dating, you later admit that you weren't really sorry because you wouldn't mind humping the shit out of her either. <laughs> the girl, that is, not the dog. <laughs> That's at least how I pictured it when I got a dog in July of 2012. <clears throat> One of the first people I met at the dog park was a girl named Muriel. At the time, we'd known each other for about two years, but had never hung out. Then, one afternoon, I suggested we take our dogs to the park and become better friends. I had no intention of dating her by doing this. I just thought it was time to get to know this person I'd been following on Twitter. And she agreed. This began the longest and one of the most entertaining text threads of my life. <clears throat> After asking me what kind of dog I had and his name, she texted me to inquire, and I quote, Are his balls big? <laughs> I have a toy fox terrier. He's nine pounds, and though his balls are generous for his size, they're nothing that anyone would label as big. So, not wanting to disappoint her, I found a picture of a dog with large balls and sent it to her. <laughs> you literally googled big animal balls, she responded. And, wanting to begin our relationship on an honest ground, I replied, huge dog balls, actually. This would become kind of a theme with her. Most people look at life and see it for the sunsets or the sunrises or the time spent with friends and family. And Muriel sees it for these things too, except when she's distracted by balls. That's why the morning her nephew was born, it didn't surprise me when, instead of announcing his birth weight and length, or even just his arrival, the first thing she texted me about him was in all caps, THE BABY'S BALLS ARE MASSIVE! <laughs> I think, she added, unsure of herself, like, I don't know what's normal. Muriel and I dated for six months, and the best way I can describe the relationship is to compare it to the First World War. Except for brief moments of peace, like the Christmas truce of 1914, we mowed each other down mercilessly. Which is why last June we decided to be better off just being friends, and I still think that's the best decision. Online. In the wake of Muriel and I not working out, I decided that I needed to try something new. That last frontier of dating I'd so long resisted. Online. 
I'd always hated the concept of it, the desperation. I'm such a loser that I can't meet anyone in person, it seemed to say. But when you're a writer who spends most of his time in sweatpants in front of a computer, your standards begin to quickly change. <laughs> I've got at least five decent profile pictures, I began saying. This could be fun. What people don't tell you is how strange of a world online dating is. You're all, you're all on there for the same reasons, to find that special someone, but everyone acts shy. At least they did to me. The site that I went, I went with gives you three options for beginning conversation. Send a smiley face, send five pre-written questions, or send them a message with, with whatever the hell you want to say. In my four months on the site, I sent a smiley face once, by accident, and have never been more embarrassed by something in my life. <laughs> Okay, I didn't mean to send that, I wrote the girl. I swear I don't live in my mother's basement. <laughs> With this, she said, L-O-L-O-L-O, okay, then never spoke to me again. <laughs> I tried sending the pre-written questions a few times, but they're just the online equivalent of asking someone what they do for a living. I hate when people do that at parties, and so I began messaging match matches with questions of my own design. What was your most recent trip to Target like, was one of my early favorites. <laughs> Until no one responded to it. So I switched to, as a presumably single 24-year-old woman, what are your views on jorts? This got a few more chuckles and some response, but nothing in the way of success. No fun numbers, no dates, nothing. I was baffled. Then one day I was listening to 50 Cent's 21 Questions, a rap song in which he asks some unknown woman 21 questions about what would happen if they dated. Immediately, I knew what I had to do. Send the lyrics to as many of my matches as possible. If I fell off tomorrow, would you still love me? I wrote, if I didn't smell so good, would you still hug me? If I got locked up and sentenced to a quarter century, could I count on you to be there to support me mentally? Apparently, I could not count on them to support me mentally, as not one of them responded. Frustrated, I began sending the girls the opening line I was using on Tinder, a dating app that essentially matches you with local singles based on whether or not you find each other physically attractive. What's the difference between a Camaro and an erection, I'd write. And when they'd say, I don't know, what? I'd respond, I don't have a Camaro. <laughs> One match said, LOL. Three didn't respond, and four blocked me within an hour. <laughs> I was as good as done with dating at this point. Sometimes your actions are for naught, Mr. Bubles. Sometimes you go into things with the best intentions, thinking you know what you want, or that you've finally done something right. And sometimes both of those notions are wrong. Sometimes you end up frustrated and lonesome, wondering if you're ever going to get it right, or maybe if your future is a house full of cats and smelling like tuna. It terrifies you. But sometimes it doesn't happen this way. Sometimes you break up with a sorority girl who unleashes her wrath upon your reputation and is friends with an attractive dark-haired girl you're almost certain hates you now. Sometimes, heartbroken and lost, you take a job working at Victoria's Secret where you hope to learn everything you can about women in an attempt to protect yourself from future mistakes. Sometimes there, one of your coworkers introduces you to her friend named Muriel, who you eventually go to a dog park with and end up dating. And sometimes this doesn't work, but while grabbing dinner one night to catch up, she tells you about a dating app called Tinder. It's funny, she says, you should get it. And sometimes you laugh at her when she says this, but get it anyways. <laughs> then one night in December, bored and over the whole dating thing, you go on the app and get matched with the attractive dark-haired girl you're almost certain hates you now. Oh, this is going to be good, you say. 
and send her a joke about a Camaro and an erection. <laughs> Much to your surprise, she responds. And sometimes over a drink, you look at the attractive dark-haired girl, who apparently doesn't hate you, and realize that every mistake you've made, every moment you felt like a complete failure, was just a draw of the same breath, the same movement that eventually causes you to look up from your menu and say, so what are you going to have? Sometimes you want to tell her this, thinking it'll be romantic and earn you some points, and sometimes you don't, waiting instead to read it in a piece in a room full of strangers and her. Thank you. The one and only Christopher Pilney. That was really good, Chris. Chris was like writing it up until what, the last second, I think, till four o'clock. <sighs> yes, I wasn't worried or anything. No, um, that was fabulous, and I'm sure uh, your dark-haired lady appreciates your transparency about your dating life. And uh, I can still vouch for him that he's a really good guy. So, uh, despite how he may have sounded in that story. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, he's great. We have two more stories, and I just realized they just so happen to be on the same uh, theme of online dating. This next lady, we, have you been noticing we've been going boy, girl, boy, girl? I thought that was fair. Um, she is a native to Tennessee, but she's traveled all around the world, and so she just doesn't fit in anywhere. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what she said. That's what she said. Um, she will never be referred to as normal, and she loves to try anything new and adventurous. Please welcome, also first time to the stage, Miss Holly Cavanaugh. story is about what happens when you actually meet someone and they respond. Because <laughs> I've searched for love in all of the right places, e-harmony, and all the wrong places, e-harmony again. <laughs> for every great and wonderful person that you meet, there's another one on the opposite side of the spectrum. So many years ago in college, I used e-harmony as a way to meet guys and for an excuse to travel during school breaks. I've been all over the country and even met one in England. One summer, I started communicating with this guy who in his profile listed his occupation as small business owner. It didn't take more than a 10-minute conversation to find out that he was the son of a gas station owner. He proceeded to explain so eloquently why he was now working at a hotel as a front desk clerk making $8.50 an hour. The worst part was I fell for it. Who am I to judge a guy who wants to be independent from his family, which surely must have a gas station empire? We had long, meaningful conversations. I learned that he lived just outside of Hilton Head. We made plans to meet a few weeks later during one of my school breaks. He was able to get me a room at his hotel for $25 a night. I thought that even if it didn't work out, I could still enjoy the beach. And if it did work out, even better. A week before I was to travel, he informed me he'd won the lottery. Hell yeah, this was going to be an even better catch. But wait, 
he won the lottery where they send you a check in the mail, and a few days later you find out that you've just been scammed. <laughs> Who cashes an unexpected lottery check for thousands of dollars for a lottery you didn't even play, <laughs> and then spends all the money in a few days? This genius didn't receive much sympathy from me. Still, I wanted to go to the beach and stay in a hotel for $25 a night. And so I did. He greets me at the hotel and oh my God, he looked nothing like his picture. The most alarming difference was his teeth. They looked more like tree roots desperately searching for water in every direction. <laughs> But if he kept his mouth closed, he really wasn't all that bad. He was kind in that lovable loser kind of way. I checked in and he showed me to my room. I learned rather quickly he expected to stay with me in my $25 a night hotel room. I didn't know how to tell him, I'm really not interested in you because you're a moron who thinks he can win the lottery he doesn't play. Anne has a smile only a mother could love. Instead, I just went along with him staying in my room because, number one, I'm the idiot. Uh, number two, I'd just driven all the way to Hilton Head. And number three, he worked the night shift. So I could go to the beach during the day when he was sleeping. No big deal. The first night worked out just as planned. He was working while I was sleeping. I knew I was fooling myself when he introduced me to the lady putting out the breakfast as his girlfriend. <laughs> he truly thought I was. He obviously wasn't as experienced an online dater as I. <sighs> if there's ever a thing called mercy sex, <laughs> that's what I had with him. I felt sorry. <laughs> he was so utterly clueless and thought that the least I could do was give him the best sex of his life. <laughs> I was the Florence Nightingale of Mercy Sex. <laughs> he had more body hair than a gorilla and similar grooming habits. <laughs> Apparently, the zookeeper hadn't been able to tranquilize him long enough to cut his toenails. They were like ten little knives at the lower end of this sexcapade. It was not a question of whether I would get stabbed with these overgrown toenails, just how deep. When I finally got stabbed, the blood came gushing out of the top of my foot, but I pretended that this pain was part of the pleasure. <laughs> oh yeah, baby, cut me again, make it hurt. <laughs> so after this gorilla sex, I became the zookeeper. I found some clippers and cut his toenails down to a normal human size. And I thought that this was as low as I could go. <laughs> That evening, we went to a very nice seafood restaurant on the beach. I got all dressed up. I wore the cutest top. My hair was done. Good makeup job. He, on the other hand, looked like his shirt just came out from the bottom of the laundry pile. Not only was it wrinkled to no end, 
but it was more out of fashion than leg warmers and shoulder pads. <laughs> we ordered the crab cakes, and when he began to eat, there was no silence at the table, because he ate with his mouth wide open. I literally had an out-of-body experience. As I'm looking down at the table, I see this animal smacking his food around while his polished date uses both a knife and fork and can eat in a smooth motion with her mouth closed. After dinner, I hit the liquor store. <laughs> I figured the only way I could get through the rest of the evening was to drink heavily. I bought two bottles of wine, just for me. He fell asleep easily and proceeded to snore so loud that I'm sure he could wake a bear in hibernation. I stayed up drinking my wine and surfing the net, and after I finished all the bottles, I thought I had to be drunk enough to sleep through anything. But... As I attempted to sleep on the fold-out couch because there was a gorilla in my bed, I could only toss and turn. Then I had a genius idea. If I took that little mattress from the fold-out bed and put it on the bathroom floor, surely I could fall asleep in there. I picked up the mattress and it fit perfectly on the floor underneath the sink. I grabbed a pillow, turned out the lights, closed my eyes, and fell asleep instantly. I was awoken the next morning by him trying to open the door. He asked me what was I doing on the bathroom floor. I was incredulous and downright mean in my response. The act of mercy was over. I told him he took over my hotel room, you snore like a beast, I'm not your girlfriend, I never will be, and I'm going home. I then proceeded to pack up my shit and go. <laughs> I did make one last stop at the beach before heading home, and as I'm sitting on the sand reflecting on this god-awful eHarmony match, I looked down and saw the cut on my foot. Oh, God, <laughs> never again. I made a vow to inspect the teeth and toes of all future love interests to verify that they fully evolved from ape to man. Because I never want to end up on the bathroom floor again. I think you should um, you should submit this story to eHarmony as like their success story or something. <laughs> you could like do like a little video promo. We could send this, and it could be like their opening thing on their website. Oh my goodness! So our final um, storyteller. Um, I am thrilled he's here. He. I didn't realize when I met him, I met him at a writer's group, that his goal in life, was it in life or just one of your goals? One of your goals. Was to be our show's token man. It's not his goal in life, just one of his goals. Um, and unfortunately, he so far has performed at the All Guys show, which was All Guys and One Girl. Um, but he says he is, um, 
he's progressing, progressing, making a, you know, making some leeway here, because now he's one of three men. But his story is um, is one of a kind. It's fabulous, and I'm thrilled he's here tonight. Please welcome our headliner, Mr. Bob Clark. We love Bob. Okay, I'm going to give you a little science lesson first. Uh, I'm recording myself with my own recorder. And see, I'm closer to the recorder, and I'm amplified by the mic. So you need to laugh extra hard, or it'll be, it'll be misleading. You know, the audio engineers call that normalization. I was a little worried about this until I heard about vomiting during sex and uh, toenail lacerations. That, that really calmed me down. This is pretty tame by comparison. I call it Brazilian sock, and it goes with something like this. My wife gave me my pink slip five years ago. Just like that, I was single for the first time in 15 years. I was devastated at first, but eventually I started thinking about dating again. It was a scary thought. To say that I'm not a ladies' man is like saying the Virgin Mary isn't a slut. <laughs> it was a miracle that I ever found someone the first time around. Now I was 15 years older, balder, fatter, and out of dating practice. I needed a more efficient process this time. I decided to try online dating. My concept of online dating was very appealing. A computer algorithm systematically analyzing and matching my traits and those that I desire with thousands of potential partners. Computers were born for that kind of work, right? What could be more efficient? Maybe it's not as romantic as love at first sight, but who cares? The romance would come later. I quickly learned that I had to prepare a profile with pictures. It was depressing to think that a couple of paragraphs and a few pictures would be the advertisement for me, my internet billboard. I can't be boiled down into such a constraining format, damn it. Just let the computer sort my traits and find my mate. It turned out that the computer wasn't doing squat without a proper profile. <laughs> I remember mine emphasized my honesty and sense of humor. The only specific statement I, I recall is, my brain is my sexiest organ. Was I trying to attract someone who liked to listen to dirty talk? I don't really remember. <laughs> the chicks didn't exactly flock to me, so I flocked to them. I sent messages to a few of my favorites. My initial tentative efforts were skillfully nipped in the bud by the unwitting recipients of my attention. I grew bolder over time after I realized that cyber rejection wasn't nearly as painful as the face-to-face -face kind. <laughs> Whoops, almost missed the page. <laughs> Yet I was surprised to discover troubling similarities to offline dating. It became clear that my model of online dating had been hopelessly naive. I wondered if the computer would ever get around to sorting my traits. Still, I plugged along. One day I discovered a Brazilian beauty named Fernanda. Her hair was dark and curly and fell a few inches below her shoulders. Her skin was dark too. In one of her pictures, she straddled a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Her arms, smothered by colorful tattoos, emerged like flames from her black leather jacket, her black leather vest. She looked feisty, a trait I figured came standard issue in Brazilian biker chicks. She was totally hot. A Brazilian biker chick? Whom was I kidding? 
how would my self-esteem, not exactly at a healthy level so soon after my wife taught me, handle the almost inevitable rejection? This Amazonian wonder would make motorcycle roadkill out of me before I knew what hit me. I gave myself a pep talk. Buck it up, boy. Don't be such a freaking wimp. Look at those pictures. Brazilian. Biker. Chick. When will you ever have such an opportunity again? No guts, no glory. The pep talk worked. I sent her a brief message. I wrote that she sounded great, delicious, too good to be true. Any, any, online, any online message that I reference here is a direct quote. I went back and oh, looked them up. Her reply came the same day. Maybe my English is not enough yet to understand some comments, but not being rude, did I leave any open door in my profile to be called delicious? I don't think so. If you were trained to be funny, you were not. T-R-I-N-G, train. Okay, I gave it a shot. Now I don't have to spend the rest of my life wondering what might have been. If only I'd had the boss to send a Brazilian biker chick a message. I know. I replied to her message anyway, without hope or expectation, beyond clearing up a slight misunderstanding. For crying out loud, Fernanda, relax. I meant no offense. I use the word delicious because you said in your profile, what makes life really delicious is you never know what is waiting for you next corner. Okay? Understand? There's nothing more to it. Please accept my, accept my apologies for upsetting you so much. I'm very sorry to have ever bothered you. <laughs> my overreaction to her overreaction had an unintended side effect. My hog-riding South American would-be sweetie wrote back. I apologize. It was an overreaction, and I understand your point, she added. Can we start again a new and fresh conversation? How about that? Our, <laughs> Our tumultuous cyber romance was off and running. <laughs> There were three more messages that day. I wrote, I wrote that I liked her profile, and she replied, I kind of like your profile, too, despite I had to go to the dictionary more times than usually. Now I'm trying to be funny. <laughs> Actual quotes. When she confirmed that she owned the Harley in the picture, I was as giddy as a schoolgirl. I learned that the tattoos weren't real. She was wearing a skin-colored shirt whose colorful long sleeves were made to give the impression of bare arms covered with tattoos. A Brazilian biker chick with a sense of humor. Everything was going extremely well, and exactly one week into our cyber courtship, I asked to see her in person. We agreed to meet at a coffee shop. I got there first and waited with agonizing hope and anticipation. I'll never forget the moment I first spotted Fernanda, the Brazilian biker chick, across the room. Even at that distance, I could tell that she was, she was older than her profile pictures had led me to believe. <laughs> Notice.
noticeably older than those profile pics. It would be hard to exaggerate the effect this realization had on me. I know what you're thinking. You're not much to look at either. I agree, I'm not. But neither are my profile pictures because they're reasonably accurate facsimiles of me because I didn't use pictures from my high school prom. Why do you think I said my brain was my sexist organ so they wouldn't feel so disappointed if they ever see my penis? <laughs> Fernanda sensed my disappointment and she said, You see... It's not my real age I put to the profile, but it's no dishonest because I feel that young. I have energy to someone as age as that. In my dazed and confused state, it took a minute for the implications of her jumbled words to sink in. She lied about her age, and she bolstered the lie with outdated pictures, but that's not misleading because she feels as age as that. <laughs> Okay, so honesty isn't her strong suit. <laughs> Neither is age, nor English. That's okay. Presumably she was still a Brazilian biker chick, although somewhat more mature than I was expecting. It wasn't the end of the world. I was already there. I decided to stick around, go with the flow, and see what happens. The conversation soon turned to the wild and crazy reputation of Brazilians. My eyes lit up with excitement. At least I was going to get treated to some bona fide South American dirty talk, I thought. <laughs> Fernanda said, People think we all Brazilians want to do wild, crazy sex always. It makes me so maddening that people think we do this way. <laughs> Why didn't she just shoot me in the head and put me out of my business? My glorious impression of her, perfected during a week of intense messaging and fantasizing, was collapsing at the speed of light. What's next? Find out she's really a man? Oh, no. And just what in the hell is so wrong with that stereotype? I'd sacrifice my left nut to have a promiscuous <laughs> reputation. If I could earn it fair and square. But not Fernanda. Not all Brazilians are like Carnival. This idea is just to put the tourists to come. By then I was numb. I wondered what the odds were of encountering a prudish Brazilian biker chief. <laughs> they must have been astronomical. I bet my right nut that she was the only one. <laughs> Ever. And thanks to efficient computers, I found her. <laughs> I should have known it was too good to be true. A randy, wild, and crazy Brazilian biker chick would have had real tattoos. My, expecta my expectations were in free fall, replaced by rationalizations. I probably couldn't have handled the real deal anyway. <laughs> but a funny thing happened as the night wore on. My initial shock diminished, and I slowly adjusted to the new reality. It was a testament to the resiliency of the human spirit. Either that or I was just really horny after all that anticipation. <laughs> She's not really that old, I thought. <laughs> and I'm not much to look at after all. Maybe she'd be up for some mild making out before the night was over. 
Maybe that wouldn't tarnish the reputation of her country. I could probably go for that. That might be nice. <laughs> then I remembered something from one of her messages that lifted my spirits and ambitions even more. She wasn't an American citizen, and her employer had declined to sponsor her for a green card. Was that a hint? <laughs> Don't look at me like that. <laughs> I would never, ever take part in a sham marriage whose only purpose was to help someone get a green card. There'd have to be some sex involved. <laughs> no, just kidding, just kidding. Marriage is for love, at least for me. But if she thought sex with me would enhance her chances for a green card, what could I do about it? <laughs> It would be insulting, distasteful, and crude to explicitly question her motives. If it ever came to that, the most humane thing for both our sakes would be to go along with it and hope she was fucking me for all the right reasons. <laughs> As it turned out, she wasn't fucking me for any reason. <laughs> Can't believe I signed the podcast release. <laughs> Our date ended with a peck on the lips, and within a couple of months, she had sold her Harley and left for a new job in France. I never would have agreed to be Fernanda's green card ticket. Still, it was a bummer to think that she chose upheaval from land, the land of the free and exile across the ocean over me. Green card marriage material is bound to be a pretty low threshold, one that I apparently didn't reach. <laughs> On the other hand, maybe she didn't want to marry for immigration status. I'm sure that even a prudish, mature Brazilian biker chick could have found a willing accomplice if that's what she wanted. Maybe she wasn't even a prude. Yeah, probably that was just a little white lie to spare my feelings. Her ethics might have been more solid than they seemed from my limited experience with her. Whatever the case... Fernanda provided a vivid illustration that online dating isn't as straightforward as I had imagined and hoped. It's a bit more complicated than sorting socks. But I knew that I'd be willing to try it again. And again. After all, how else would I have gotten a date with a Brazilian biker chick? <laughs> Bob Clark, headline. <laughs> Bob, you know, if, if you just work on the Brazilian accent a little bit, I think you could be the token man. Um, oh my gosh, that accent. It was an accent. I don't know what kind of accent it was. It was an accent. Very good, very good. Oh gosh, that was classic story. Well, I want to sincerely thank all of you so much for coming to Looking for Love and All the Wrong Places, and I especially want to thank these fabulous storytellers for their wonderful stories. Let's give a big round of applause to all of them. heard go spread the word they're funny smart and so absurd happens every month it's the neatest storytelling at its sweetest